Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Life podcast with your host, Sylvia Cunningham. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Tearing Down Walls on Sunshine Live, a show in partnership with WNHU at the University of New Haven. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Every month, I join you from Berlin in a transatlantic dialogue to talk about the things that unite and divide us. Now, tomorrow is the big day. Germans are heading to the polls in a historic election. With Chancellor Angela Merkel not running for re-election, the race has been wide open, and due to the pandemic, much of it's been playing out on social media. When it comes to the spread of disinformation and the tone of political campaigns, how do Germany and the U.S. compare? To give us more of an overview, I've invited Madeleine Brady, a program officer at Democracy Reporting International. She's been working on a social media dashboard throughout the campaign season with the newspaper Der Tagesspiegel that tracks the chancellor candidates and lead candidates of the six main parties that sit in the German parliament, the Bundestag. Welcome to the program, Madeline. Hi, Sylvia. Thank you so much for having me. So first off, can you explain a little bit more about what's in the dashboard? In the dashboard, you'll find lots of data visuals analyzing all of the candidate posts since June 2021. And there's also lots of information about um, the number of comments on those candidate posts, the number of followers per candidate, the top words, hashtags, and even emojis used by the candidates, um, as well as discussed by the users. So we're kind of trying to summarize how the campaign is going and bring that to the public's attention. So you mentioned a bunch of the features that we see on the dashboard. Do you have a favorite thing that you like to check? Yeah, I think maybe a more fun one I mentioned is looking at the emojis um, and how the candidates use emojis as well as users use emojis to talk about the candidates. But you'll see a German flag is used a little bit more frequently with maybe the more conservative parties. Armin Lachet loves world flags, it seems. And Annalena Baerbock uses lots of camera emojis, which kind of links with her strong use of Instagram on this campaign. She's using lots of images we can see. But maybe a little more seriously, I really like looking at the word associations with candidates. I find this to be really interesting because you'll see um, that Baerbock, for example, is the subject of words like sexy, cute, vain, while Lindner and Vidal, for example, receive more positive comments in terms like brilliant and remarkable. So I think kind of these word associations are interesting to see how people are talking about the campaign, but also what the candidates themselves are focusing on. Earlier this month, public broadcaster SWR previewed a new study about disinformation during the German election campaign. And the findings were that between the top candidates for chancellor, so Annalena Baerbach from the Green Party, Armin Laschet from the conservative Christian Democrats, and Olaf Scholz from the center-left Social Democrats, it is Annalena Baerbach by far, of course, the only female candidate among those three, who is targeted most by disinformation and fake news. So, Madeline, how much has disinformation factored into this campaign? Yeah, I think, I mean, so far we haven't seen like a, a disinformation on a huge scale of a giant lie that goes viral, but we've been seeing lots of misleading little things. So exaggerated reports, um, failed attempts to push narratives, and then lies buried in believable stories. And we're actually putting out a research brief 
uh, in the next few weeks that we'll go into this a little bit more. But we've also seen some coordinated attempts to kind of push those stories. So what are some examples of the little lies? Maybe an example is the plagiarism with Annalena Baerbock and how, yeah, this story has just gotten so much traction and maybe more attention than it really deserves, rather than looking into some of the more policy and hard-hitting issues at hand. Um, And we just keep seeing this coming up in the hashtags, for example. Right. And Baerbach was accused of plagiarism in a new book that she released during the campaign by an Austrian academic that the German press often call a plagiarism hunter. Um, So you've previously researched how women are disproportionately harassed on social media. How are we seeing that play out on a political level? Yeah, definitely. This is something that we've seen in um, several elections around the world that we've taken a look at. And at this point, the findings that Annalena Baerbock is being targeted with more sexist language, um, questioning her credibility and her expertise is not really surprising. We've seen this in elections. I I can think back to research from like 2017, 2016, um, looking even at the Hillary Clinton campaign and I don't know why we seem to be surprised by this every every new election. So I think we need to raise more awareness about this issue just so that I think when these little sub, subtle terms are being spread on social media, they get deep into people's psyches and could influence how they're voting, um, you know, calling a woman cold or these types of things and saying that you don't want to vote for them because of these reasons, that worries me a little bit. So yeah, I think because we're not surprised by this happening, we should just all become a little bit more aware in our own (laughs) reading and thinking before we vote. And your organization, Democracy Reporting International, will be releasing a full report after the elections, so we'll stay tuned for that. Madeline Brady, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Tearing Down Walls, our transatlantic show on Sunshine Life. Now, platforms like Facebook and Twitter can run rampant with misleading stories and fake news. But how do voters here in Germany actually consume their news? According to the annual digital news report from the Reuters Institute, although an increasing number of Germans are looking at social media for news, the majority of people still turn to television for information. And comparatively, the number of people getting their news from social media in the U.S., however, is higher. Here with me to break that down a little more is Jan Henrik Schmidt. He is a senior researcher for digital interactive media and political communication at the Leibniz Institute for Media Research. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So in terms of this election season in Germany, how influential have social media platforms been? Not many Germans uh, use social media as their main or only source of information. So for many people, social media might be one amongst many other sources where they get information. And they might even use social media to get information from trusted journalistic sources. So they might follow uh, news broadcasts from public service media, the target show on Twitter, for example. On the other hand, where social media has grown uh, in importance over the last years is that social media is regarded as an, as an indicator of public opinion by journalists and politicians. So politicians and journalists look at the debates on social media. For example, look at debates that are particular to to Twitter, but we look at that and and then mistakenly might get the impression, well, everyone is talking about this particular politician or this particular topic. And this is something where we scientists or we academics usually warn against and say, well, it's only a minority, but still this is something 
This is kind of the d- dynamic that's happening. But that does then create this echo chamber, right, of basically politicians responding to things that only a small percentage of the population is saying and kind of elevating a debate that otherwise wouldn't get that much attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we've always, political correspondents need to talk to politicians and, and, and are observing what they're doing. And there's, in German, we call it Blase. It's, it's like a bubble, some kind of a filter bubble or echo chamber. Twitter has expanded this bubble in a way because now we can observe how politicians and, and journalists interact and um, we can observe how activists or how, how people who are involved with campaigns interact amongst each other. But the broad population, if we talk about Twitter, the broader population is not on Twitter. In Germany, if they are on social media, they are on Facebook, on YouTube, on Instagram. As I mentioned at the top, more people in the U.S. do turn to social media for news, according to the Digital News Report. In April 2020, 47% of surveyed Americans said that they had used social media as a source of news in the last week, compared to 39% of Germans. And that number might seem relatively low, but we also should compare that to when this report was first published in 2013. And back then, that number for Germans was 18%. So there has been this pretty significant increase. That said, do you think that Germany might be on track to become more like the U.S. in terms of how people interact with social media. Do we see similar trends or not so much? Well, even if the numbers will rise even more over the next years, I think there are still important differences between uh, the U.S. and Germany. For example, the political system in Germany is not as polarized as it is in the U.S. That's one important because polarization will then sort of almost automatically lead to heated debates because then everything is about this polarization. In Germany, we have more parties. We might even see three parties almost equal at this election. We'll see. That's one difference. And the other difference is that the uh, the media system in Germany is more pluralistic on a general level than in the US because we have this strong public service broadcasters, two of them. We still have a, a broad range of uh, local and uh, national newspapers at their online. They're online as well, of course, but the diversity of different outlets and uh, even in ideological positions is, as far as I can tell, in Germany broader than in the U.S. Jan-Henrik Schmidt is a senior researcher for digital interactive media and political communication at the Leibniz Institute for Media Research. Thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Tearing Down Walls is a co-production of Sunshine Life and college radio station WNHU. 88.7 FM out of West Haven. This is Tearing Down Walls, and today we're talking about the role social media plays in influencing our elections. Joining me now is Flora Adamian. She is pursuing her master's in German and European studies at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Flora. Thanks for having me. Also joining us is Sarah Schmidt, a freelance journalist based here in Berlin and fact checker at Lead Stories. Hey, Sarah, thanks for joining. Thank you, Sylvia. So, Flora, let's start with you. Back in 2018-2019, you were living here in Berlin and interning at the German parliament, the Bundestag, for part of that time. What kind of insight did you get into German politics during that time, and how does it compare to the U.S.? It was definitely different than American politics in that, you know, one, it's a parliamentary system, so there's a lot more representation, not so much polarization in the way that we have in the U.S., not as much gridlock. The members of parliament seem to be more accessible than I would say congresspeople are in the U.S. I 
was regularly in contact with the member that I was working for, like had lunch with her, just felt like it was more down to earth in that way. And since returning to the States, you spent some time working on Capitol Hill, drafting press releases and also producing social media content. Do you feel like there was more emphasis um, there in terms of U.S. representatives wanting to connect with the public via these platforms? Absolutely. I think every office in Congress has, there's a a delineation down the middle of, you know, the legislation people and then the communications people. So I would almost say sometimes it feels like it's half and half, like communications is just as important as legislation nowadays. And I always bring it up, like post-Trump, like the, the game really did change in that everyone started paying attention to social media. And sometimes it is positive in terms of transparency. But at the same time, I think that the downside of that is there's just so much emphasis on like making hot takes, you know, being edgy, being kind of playing into the party politics of like attacking the other side, et cetera. And I saw that, you know, lead to more polarization and just not a very substantive conversation online. Sarah, meanwhile, you're here in Berlin working as a fact checker for Lead Stories, where you identify misinformation on platforms like TikTok. What has been some common disinformation making the rounds? In the context of this election, we do see that the tone of the debate ahead of the election has become rougher. And we see more attacks on, you know, the opposing party And I think this sometimes also takes the form of misinformation. We don't always know who, you know, is the originator of a piece of misinformation. But what we have seen a lot is attacks on the Green Party in the context of things that they are supposedly planning on uh, banning when they're in power. So there is misinformation going around that the Greens are going to ban pets or that you're not allowed to build single family homes anymore. And these things are obviously untrue. Um, We also see attacks on the CDU that seem to come more from a leftist camp of people. And it seems there is a lot of focus on things like corruption. That seems something that young people are very sensitive to. But we do see things that are taken out of context sometimes. So An example would be, I don't know if you followed this um, earlier this year when it became known that the health ministry had ordered uh, masks that were not uh, certified to be used in a medical medical context. And Spahn suggested giving them to institutions that cater to homeless people and, you know, to people with disabilities. This caused a huge, huge like uproar that, you know, people said, oh, you know, he's giving defective masks to vulnerable populations. The thing was, though, that the masks were not defective. They just didn't have the necessary EU certification to be used in hospitals, etc. So, Flora, in the time leading up to the German elections, you've been in Washington, D.C., Have people in your circles been watching the elections closely or with excitement? What's the mood? Definitely there's excitement with any election, but I would say the majority of what I've been hearing and seeing is a lot of like hesitancy, uncertainty, just because um, nobody really knows what Germany post Angela Merkel looks like. And I think we're all in the U.S. a bit traumatized from the last um, election. And so it's really hard to predict what 
is going to happen post-election and what that means for the stability of the European Union, the transatlantic relationship, etc. Sarah, do you relate to that feeling of uncertainty? Do you feel like everything is up in the air in ways it hasn't been in previous elections? I think one thing that is definitely wide open now is that none of the candidates that are currently running have Angela Merkel's stability and reliability that we are used to in a way. So I think that there will be probably more, you know, conflict. I don't think we will have a candidate in the future that's going to be in power for the next 16 years. Flora, you were living in Germany for part of Trump's presidency, and a lot was said about the fractured transatlantic relationship during that time. Do you think it's been repaired at all since Joe Biden took office, or what's the feeling there? There's definitely a sense of optimism in the air, especially in transatlantic studies. The whole theme is rebuilding the relationship, looking forward, um, strengthening the alliance. With that said, though, I think that we're still recovering from the last four years and that uncertainty hasn't left. I think the transatlantic relationship, at least for the next few years, is still going to be impacted by that the, the Trump years, like even with like what happened in Afghanistan, the way that um, President Biden went about it without, you know, consulting the EU. That was a whole thing of controversy. And so I think that a lot of people are like thinking oh, is the transatlantic relationship forever going to be different? Are we not going to be as communicative as we were in previous years? That could change, but it's also the state of the U.S. right now. I don't think anyone thinks that what happened in the last four years is completely behind us. People are still looking forward to 2022, 2024, and very apprehensive about another shift back to perhaps, you know, something like the Trump years. And so... While people are, I think, cautiously optimistic, there's still this uh, feeling that maybe it's not over. Flora, when you compare your experience having lived in both Berlin and D.C., do you think that the U.S. can learn something from Germany? Is there something you wish you could kind of import back to the States? There's the seriousness um, within German politics and I definitely have seen, you know, the celebrity culture that we have in the U.S., particularly with our politicians. And I don't think that that is always the most um, productive thing, especially for legislation. I think sometimes we get so caught up in these like headlines, you know, the um, scandals, et cetera, where we kind of forget that like this is not a reality TV show. This is policy. This is legislation. These are issues that are super important and impact millions of people. And so I really do think we could learn from just the way that the German press perhaps covers their politicians and the way that just people in general see the role of politicians in society in Germany. And Sarah, what do you think about that? Do you agree that the U.S. can learn something from Germany? And is there anything Germany could take from the U.S. maybe? The parliamentary system that we have in Germany does have a lot of advantages and I think one thing in the disinformation context that we see is the question whether elections are fair and safe. And the this uh, piece of misinformation that um, the election in the, the last presidential election in the U.S. was stolen had really devastating consequences. And we now see certain right wing parties and interest groups in Germany you know, trying to sow the same kind of distrust in the democratic systems 
And what we see in Germany is that it does not really stick. You know, people don't seem to pick up on this kind of rumor and this kind of this misinformation. I think it is a good system at representing, you know, the will of the people in a way more fairly. One thing about the American system that could be good for Germany is maybe, uh, you know, putting uh, term limits on leadership. Because I think a lot of people do feel that 16 years of just one person in power is maybe too long. Sarah Schmidt is a freelance journalist in Berlin and fact checker at Lead Stories. And Flora Adamian is pursuing her master's in German and European studies at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you, Sylvia. In this final part of the show, I'm joined by Chris Haynes. He's an associate professor at the University of New Haven, home to our partner radio station, WNHU. And he's an expert on the impact the ever-evolving media landscape is having on politics. Chris Haynes, thank you for joining me. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So first off, what has been the mood in the U.S. surrounding Germany's election? Has there been a lot of talk, a lot of interest? You know, to be honest, <laughs> um, typical for Americans, I'm not sure there's a lot of talk about the German elections. Um, you know, there are a number of reasons for that. You know, number one, Americans uh, typically don't tend to pay much attention to foreign policy or foreign or international relations. But you also have the, you know, the complex nature of how uh, you elect the German chancellor. That's very different than how you elect the American president. And you put those together with the hurricane and the pullout of Afghanistan, and uh, you have uh, the perfect storm for a lot of uh, ignorance, I guess, if you want to call it. (laughs) But do you have the sense that Americans are at least aware that Angela Merkel is leaving the political stage? Uh, I mean, in, in, I guess in most like academic or educated circles, yes, to that extent. Um, I think they, I think most Americans know who Angela Merkel is, whether or not they know much more beyond the fact that she's the German leader, has been there for a long time and is leaving. I think that might be about it. You know, uh, Trump has mentioned Merkel a couple of times uh, in the last four years. Uh, but, you know, beyond that, I, I'm not sure how much focus there is there. And of course, in your circles and you as a political scientist, you're in a different category probably than most of the general public. So what are your reflections on Angela Merkel not running for re-election as chancellor and leaving the political landscape? No, that's a great question. And my first reflection is that it really is an end of you know an era in European politics, but also in European American politics. You know, it almost seems like you have a vacuum being kind of like opened up with the departure of Merkel, not only on the German stage, but on the European stage. And this really does coincide with President Biden trying to uh, reinvigorate, to, uh, you know, realign this transatlantic alliance. And you almost, you know, if you were President Biden, would hope that there would be an Angela Merkel there to help guide the ship uh, on the European part and be a partner. Who that partner might be, uh, we're just not sure at this point and whether or not the, the alliance survives in, in the same way that it was pre-Trump administration is TBD. Chris, you co-authored The Twitter Effect, how Trump used social media to stamp his brand and shape the media narrative on immigration. Can you share some of your main findings of how Trump used Twitter? You know, what we found was oftentimes Twitter wasn't always the first 
platform that he used, he might have gone on television interviews, he might have done a press conference and some other things. And, and Twitter was just one of a number of different platforms that he used to really propagate his message. Twitter eventually became the focus because a lot of his more raw comments came on Twitter, right? The things that he thought of in the moment, right? And and because a lot of those tended to be really either, you know, bombastic or controversial or just entertaining. I think that's why they got so much attention. And then the media started just focusing on what was Trump tweeting at that point, partially because it was just we didn't know what to think of what Trump said in the formal setting, because, you know, he wasn't always telling a complete version of the truth, if that's being generous, right? But when you know, I guess we had come to, to think or to know that, you know, Trump's tweets were a much closer version of what he actually thought. And so I think that's why there was more and more focus as the campaign went on, but specifically throughout his presidency to actually kind of figuring out where is Trump? Because, you know, people are trying to predict what's going to happen moving forward with a number of different things. So I'm curious, if Trump were to launch a 2024 bid for presidency and wasn't able to be on Twitter this time due to what's supposed to be this permanent suspension on the platform, do you think that Twitter not being at his disposal would not be as significant or as relevant as people would assume? What do you think? People might think, oh my gosh, no Twitter, it's not going to happen, right? And I think that would be premature to kind of say that given what we knew about what happened the last time. Um, the reason why Trump got so much attention was not only because he used Twitter or because it was, well, it was because he got so much coverage in general because he was, you know, at first this very interesting candidate who was very out of the norm. And then he became uh, this out of the norm Republican nominee. And, you know, in within the American political context and the media context, if you become the Republican nominee, one of the major two parties, you get a lot of coverage. And and so if he does eventually, and, and all signs point to him running in 2024, um, all signs point to the fact that his followers are at least almost as fervent, you know, fervently uh, in favor of him running again and supporting him again. That's the case. He gets a nomination. I have no doubt that Twitter or no Twitter, he'll still be able to capture you know, a lot of the media narrative and propagate his message in a number of ways. He might even use a different, you know, social media platform, you know, like Getter, um, you know, at, at some point to kind of get his message out there or an alternative to Twitter. And in terms of the rocky transatlantic relationship, there was the hope that when Joe Biden took office, things might improve. So looking in regards to the next German chancellor, do you think that people in the U.S. are interested in, in continuing that work and, and further repairing the connection? I mean, I think it really depends on which side of the political divide you are at this point. You know, America is so, so polarized. And Trump made this a big part of his rhetoric, which is to the, the unimportance of these transatlantic alliances, the, the typical alliances with Europe, uh, with the Far East, uh, South Korea, Japan. You know, I think that really sent that message to his voters, right, that these types of things aren't important. So if you're if you're one of those voters, they, they could probably care less or it's just not top of mind. But if you're one of the Biden voters, right, those more internationalists, in a sense, you're absolutely concerned about this and you want a partner, a strong partner in Germany. You do not want a fragmented Europe because that that adds instability to the entire security situation um, for Europe and for the United States. And so, 
you know, and I think Biden has has definitely preached that in his new message, in his new Biden doctrine, right? America's back. It's, you know, it's weird because the American foreign policy is no longer something that, you know, unites Americans across political parties. It is now defined also by the political polarization that, you know, that pervades everything else between Republicans and Democrats. Chris Haynes is an associate professor at the University of New Haven. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the fourth edition of Tearing Down Walls. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. This show was produced and edited by me and Monica Müller-Kroll. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.